0: I'm Luke Burbank. How's your week going? Hope you're having a good one. We just got back from a really fun trip to Chicago. Um, Well, it was mostly fun. I did trip and fall down and hit my face on the ground like hours before showtime. So that was a little embarrassing. I had to do some creative work with some band-aids and some cover-up and foundation. But I have to say, my enthusiasm, my excitement... For chatting with the crowd at Lincoln Hall in Chicago, it was undiminished. Um, that's because I have always sort of had a certain obsession with the city of Chicago. Uh, take a listen. This is very exciting for us to be here once again in Chicago. I have to say that uh, I've always loved the city of Chicago. Even as a little kid growing up in Seattle, I was obsessed with Chicago Because Chicago was the home of my all-time life hero, Michael Jordan. I see you are sports fans. You've heard of him. I had every Michael Jordan poster on my wall. I mowed lawns all summer so that I could get a pair of Nike Air Jordans. I went to a Chicago Bulls Seattle Supersonics Uh, exhibition game at the Kingdome in Seattle with one goal in mind, and that was to touch the head of Michael Jordan. And I did. The game was over. The players were leaving. I was leaning over the tunnel where they were. I wrapped my legs around the railing and I leaned all the way out and I put my hand right on top of his head. And he looked at me and he said, what are you doing? It was very soft. And it was very sweaty. And I could feel his energy inhabiting my body. And I knew in that moment that I would be able to dunk a basketball, just not on a regulation 10-foot hoop, because I was about 5'4". So luckily, my buddy Peter had a, like an adjustable dunk hoop rim that you could kind of make different heights. So we would set it at about 6 feet. And then we would get an exercise trampoline of his mother's. And we would run in the alley and we'd bounce off the trampoline and we would just go to town on that six foot rim. And we would sometimes set up a video camera so that you couldn't see the trampoline in the shot. And we would videotape ourselves doing this because we were extremely cool dudes. Um, We would also play a lot of one on one. And you had to win best of seven. And if you won best of seven, that overall thing was itself one game, which you needed the best of seven of those events. So these games would take 15 to 20 hours. And one day we decided we wanted to really up the ante. Um, here was the thing. So uh, Peter's parents, and particularly his dad, was a devotee of a guy named Meher Baba, who was like a kind of Eastern mystic kind of guy. My parents were devotees of Jesus Christ, like extreme fundamentalist Christians. And Peter and I decided that if he won the game, it meant that Meher Baba was the one true way. And if I won the game, it meant Jesus Christ was the one true way. So it was like a lot of pressure on this game (laughs) happening in Seattle, Washington in 1987. And it went the distance, 49 games later, it's down to game point. And he shoots on game point, Peter does, the ball bounces off the rim, bounce off the backboard, bounce off the side of the rim, sits there for what felt like an hour, and it falls through, and he wins. And I was crushed, because I had to go home and tell my parents that their whole life was a lie. But he did something really kind, he came, he put his arm around me, and he said, you know, the thing with Meher Baba is he believes that there are many ways to God, including Jesus. I said, so, like, we both won, I guess. He said, no, that's not how it works at all. <laughs> you totally lost, but I'm just explaining how Meher Baba works to you. Um, that was sort of a tangent. I guess what I wanted to say is we're really excited to be here in Chicago. We have a great show. Uh, let's get your first guest out here. How about it? Um our first guest is an educator and a motivator, an author and a poet, an activist, and organizer. Uh, he is the artistic director of Young Chicago Authors. His latest book is A People's History of Chicago. Please welcome Kevin Koval to LiveWire.
1: <laughs> Kevin, welcome to LiveWire. Thank you so much, man. Welcome to Chicago. Thank you. This
0: is a... Uh... Uh, an amazing town. As you well know, you grew up uh, in the sort of greater Chicagoland
1: area. What was your life like growing up here? Uh, it was good. I mean, I was born in a coach house on Roscoe. Uh, my folks moved to Aldine after that. I went to a Jewish day school at Pine Grove and Grace. Shout out to Aunt Emmett. Um, although I hated that school, so let's be real. Um, <laughs> uh, and then, uh, yeah, my, my folks uh, split, and we moved to the Burbs. I went to Glenbrook North High School, uh, and it was... Yeah, I also hated that school. So, um, did you go to I any schools school. you liked? No, no, I was a bad, I'm, I was a trash student always. You know, uh, yeah, for real. I'm a, I'm really, really? I mean, yeah, I was always a very, very bad student. Ever since fifth grade, when Miss Cedarlin like tried to like test me in my science class, you know, she was like. I don't know if you're familiar with how school works, but testing is a fairly big part of it. Uh, yeah. No, she, you know, she, she, I, I handed in this uh, assignment, but I didn't do the last question, and she's like, "I'm gonna mark it all wrong." and i'm like but i just didn't know the last one and she was like no 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 i'm going to give you a, an incomplete and i just went i went wild you know what i mean i just like flipped out and i called her all sorts of names and told her about her hairy arms i mean it was horrible it was bad i felt bad about it like in retrospect but ever since that point like i was really just steadily fighting with my teachers. Later, it was for better reasons, though. You know? Really? Yeah.
0: It's interesting, because you now work with a number of different programs that really help kids. You're a mentor to people, but like, sounds like you needed a mentor when you were a
1: kid. For real. That Yeah, which is kind of the irony. I mean, even when I started teaching, when I was asked into the classroom for the first time, my buddy Ibu Patel, who's a an incredible uh, you know, writer and uh, religious organizer here in Chicago and around, around the planet. He was teaching at El Quarto on the west side, and he was like, yo, come into my classroom. I'm like, that's a horrible idea, my dude. You know? and, but that's how, that's how I started to teach, because he invited me into the classroom. Um, you've been on The Daily Show with uh, Trevor Noah a couple of times, and I was
0: watching one of those interviews, and uh, Trevor Noah said something that I probably wouldn't say as a white dude, but I was kind of thinking it, which was when we were reading about your work, we, like Trevor no, assumed you were African-American. I am not. <laughs> For the radio listeners at home, he is not. Right, okay, yeah. The other thing that Trevor asked you that I found really interesting was this question of how you, as a, as a white Jewish guy, how you move through this world, uh, a lot of it having to do with things uh, associated with African-Americans without culturally appropriating things. Like, how do you figure out what your role in everything is?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that I've been really lucky. Um, you know, I grew up in a moment where hip hop was cultural export for the planet as long as you were outside of New York. And so for everybody who was experiencing the culture, we experienced it really primarily through the form of records or films. I mean, I saw Style Wars in 1984 on PBS and Beat Street, and you know immediately got you know, parachute pants and started a break. and um, But the culture was, I think for latchkey kids around the earth, Uh, permission to investigate themselves and begin a process of self-education and so hip-hop sent me to the library I mean yeah I could I I did get in a lot of trouble as a kid but I also was saved by a culture that was asking me I think and asking a generation to not only investigate what the story of America actually is but also to create uh hip-hop is deserve it of a Nobel Peace Prize. It took implements of destructions out of the hands of young people and put in tools of creation. And there is no other culture, I think, in the history of planet Earth that has brought more young people together than hip hop cultural practice. And so I'm a child of that moment and a child of that movement. And yes, there is also the reality that white people historically have appropriated every black cultural making uh, that in this country and beyond has existed. And, you know, sometimes there's a fine line, but also there's a rich history of solidarity and a rich history, I think, of, uh, you know, thankfully, like black comrades also checking the shit. Can I swear? Uh, sure checking the out of white people, and I think that that's important, too. Oh, on the radio? No. Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, I just mean, My bad, yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the
0: things... <laughs> uh, uh, one of the things I've heard you, you talk about is how you have, like we all, you've sort of made mistakes throughout your life, and you've had people kind of check you, yeah. and, and how have you been able uh, to be open to that? Because a lot of times when people try to, like, you know speak to somebody else's life. There's a sense of wanting to be defensive or closed down. But it sounds like you're, you're sort of, you sort of—you acknowledge that you're a work in progress.
1: Yeah, all, yeah always. And, and I think two things. One is that you know, hip hop asks you to represent or represent your own story authentically. So I think it would be um, disingenuous if I tried to tell uh, a story from another perspective that wasn't my own. So I try to do that work as a writer. Um, and also, I knew from the very beginning that I was walking and participating in territory that wasn't my own, in part, because I was that white dude. I was that only white dude for a long time. And for a long time, I wore that as a bit of a badge. You know, I liked that that was my name in the space. And I also was, in, you know, I, I, I became enmeshed in a community that welcomed me and I left a community that was very confused about what it is I was doing, and also resistant to the ideas that I was also then learning. Um, I've had most problems in all white spaces. Um, this book
0: is really amazing, man. Um, uh, what are you what are you trying to say about Chicago with this book?
1: Well, I'm trying to tell um, a broad story, you know, I think. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm a fan and, and and see myself as a bit of a student of Studs Terkel and mm-hmm. and a lot of Chicago's great listeners from Ida B. Wells and Upton Sinclair to Studs and, you know, uh, NPR's uh, own Natalie Moore and folks like this who, you know, do do work of telling the story and it's, uh, telling the story of a city in its totality. And so this book, I try to studs in, in the beginning of his own book, Chicago, he talks about uh, the condition of being a Chicagoan is you have we have experienced it in a. Janice-like way, that it's two-sided, it's two-faced. And and we are in the midst of probably one of the most brilliant times in the history of Chicago culture. You know, young people, uh, you know, 14 to 28 are creating, I think, some of the most important music and the most important culture in the history of the planet. You know, and the world is waking up to the uh, ingenuity of young people in the city. And at the same time, you know, you look in the other direction or on the same block, and it's also one of the most brutal cities in the world and I think that if we are going to love the city we have to love it in its totality and we have to be responsible to change it and make it more for every single body that is here and not just the north side and not just some that's on us to do you know Um, so that's what the book the book in part is is about is about trying to tell a a full narrative and also at the same time remind us of of working-class victories you know, working people, working people all over the planet and working people in Chicago specifically have fought and in some instances died and certainly risked their lives and livelihood to ensure we have, you know, things that we count on now, like eight, an eight-hour day or health insurance or a minimum wage or kindergarten or garbage pickup. And a lot of this innovation and a lot of this fight comes from, you know, good working people in this city. And I think now, now as we see the, you know, we see a a uh, cementing of the oligarch and the hyper-rich in the city center of this country. Um, We're reminded that working people need to come together across every imaginable boundary to create solidarity in order to resist those centralized forces. You know, we need to win. This is our city. This is our country. And we can't rely on the oligarchs, you know. That is Kevin Koval right there. This is Live Wire Radio from
0: PRI. We're going to take a real short break and then we'll be back live from Lincoln Hall in Chicago. Hey, have you ever thought about starting your own live wire? Um, well, you're gonna need some stuff if you want to do that. You're gonna need uh, a theater. you're gonna need a house band. Maybe you got friends that are good, you know, with instruments or something. Uh, you got to get a live audience there. Um, you need microphones. Like, microphones are a huge part of what we do week in and week out. Um, I don't know where you're going to get all of that stuff. I would say just probably go on the internet and search for it. Um, but the easy part about making your own live wire would be getting the chair and also the desk that I use when I am making the show because we get those from Fully. And you can go to Fully's website right now, or if you're in Portland, you can stop in to their retail location and get yourself some amazing stuff that will help your productivity, it will help your health. Uh, Their website is Fully.com. They're a Portland company. They've been helping Livewire out for years and years. And they make the Jarvis sit-stand desk that I use when I'm doing the show. And they also sell the Capisco chair that I use uh, when I'm hosting the show. In fact, when I'm at my house recording stuff, as I am right now, I sit on a TikTok stool from Fully. All of this stuff is designed to keep you engaged, to keep you creative, to keep you productive, even when you're in a, a sort of work environment. It's been great for me. It's been great for the LiveWire staff. They redid our offices there in Portland. Uh, so if you want to find out more about what Fully does, head over to fully.com LiveWire, and you're like one or two steps closer to having your own radio show. This is Live Wire Radio from PRI. We are in Chicago at Lincoln Hall this week. We have Kevin Koval here, uh, author of numerous books, including A People's History of Chicago. This is a
1: book of poetry. How did you start writing poems? Uh, because I wanted, to, <laughs> I wanted to rap, you know, um, and I was really bad. And... Uh, <laughs> Um, krs one called himself a poet and a teacher, and uh, but the poems I was getting in my high schools, and this is where I was fighting with my teachers later. Where, you know, they were primarily done by dead white dudes getting lost in the forest, and they weren't they weren't not anything that I could really connect to, and and so um, I read you know these four books when I was a sophomore junior in, in high school. It was uh, first the autobiography of Malcolm X, and then in the same stacks of the public library they had Lerone Bennett Jr.'s uh, Before the Mayflower: History of Black America. Then it was Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States of America, which also politicized me radically. And I went to uh, Mr. Holt's junior period, uh, junior year American history class. And before he even got in the room, I had my hand up like I was bugging out and do the right thing. And I was just like, hey, Mr. Holt, how come there are only uh, white men on the wall? And he's like, uh, Mr. Koval, why don't you go to the dean's office? And um, and then and then it was The Black Poets edited by Dudley Randall, an anthology that came out of uh, Detroit in, in the 50s. Uh, And for the first time in my life, I read Miss Gwendolyn Brooks, and I read Mary Baraka, and I read Sonia Sanchez, and Nikki Giovanni, and Jane Cortez, and uh, at the time, a a man, a poet named Don L. Lee, who later changed his name to Hakim Madhuburi, and I read him at 16, and when I was 26, he became my mentor. Wow! And so I I started writing poems because, uh, you know, I, I saw on the page, read on the page, working class narratives who were also uh, poets who were also delighting in the syntax and musicality of language as the rappers I was listening to. And so something clicked and stuck, you know? Um,
0: do you look back at any of the early poetry you wrote and sort of cringe? Because that's a pretty common thing for most people. Not all of them go on to actually be accomplished poets like yourself.
1: Yeah, no, my, it's, a, I mean, of course, you, you have to, um, you know, you have to like do to your diapers before you skateboard. Do you know what I mean? Like oh, you, sure. That old <laughs> saying. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and maybe so, that's a chicago thing yeah
1: yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah no ketchup on the hot dog and do to your diapers and before your skateboard. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, so, and so yeah i mean it's horrible to look at those poems and i have um i, ha- I have like a, a a drawer filled with all my old notebooks and um i haven't for a long time but I, yeah maybe i don't know like 10 years ago i'm like oh my god because they were all like either it was one of two things it was either like Battle raps to my teachers, you know, <laughs> like, oh, Mrs. You know, uh, Mrs. So and so, you so racist and whack. Uh, you know what I mean? They were not good. Is is the point? <laughs> they were not good. Uh, and then, and then, or it was like, yeah, or it was like, like wildly sappy, corny love poems to, you know, women who I think like didn't really know my name, and I think I gave them the poems, and then it became weird and stalkerish. So yeah, you know. <laughs>
0: Um, well, I would love to hear one of your poems that isn't weird and stalkerish. <laughs> would you uh, would you mind reading something from uh, from your your book of people's history of Chicago?
1: Yeah, thanks, man. I will. Um, <laughs> cool. Uh, you, you, some of y'all are are old enough to remember the incredible delicacy we had in the corner store. You can't get it anymore because of um, like sanitation laws, but uh, y'all know about a uh, pickle and a peppermint stick in the oh, city. Oh, yeah. yeah, you know what it is. So this is. Um, this is in some ways like a, an excavation of not only the, what I imagine to be the etymology of that delight, but also um, a bit on uh, white flight. This is called Pickle with the Peppermint Stick, White Flight after World War II, 1948 to 1978. Pickle with the Peppermint Stick is some Maxwell Street holdover. Brine, tangy, crisp since 1898 when the first wave of immigrant Jews slid safe from Europe and made shtetls. Schmatas tied over the wide hips of bubbies preparing vegetables for the hawk and long winter ahead. A pickle is perfect for lunch, some snack out a jar garlic peppercorn and dill enterprise young hustler Henry Ford off the block out the hood innovate dream America in the trunk in church of the dollar amass mass produce and plastic produce plastic exit the schedule for the shrubs of the suburbs leave relics in the corner store leave poor darker new immigrants behind in the corner store leave something for them to suck on the south side became the new north became the old south Harriet's railroad stopped Two soon, shtetls grew ghettos blacks from the south stopped on the stoop but the stoop already claimed the corner already owned by someone else Jim Crow lives here too the sour, too much to take after coming all that way, the north promised roads of gold and bellies of milk, salt and vinegar too much bitter to swallow too much history to inherit and repeat the peppermint stick is some sweetness to help America go down, some castor oil and barbecue, some addition and innovation kids with hot tongues playing with fire demanded for fun, a change of pace and palate, so they shank the pickle with the peppermint stick like a VD exam, something here is sick and burning here's some cool to extinguish the fire, here's some mint to ease all this funk Kevin Koval
0: his book is a people's history of Chicago Kevin Koval, thank you so much
1: thank you so much, man
0: All right, uh, Kevin, uh, we didn't want to just talk about Chicago and about some of the programs that you've worked with. We wanted to meet some of the people who've actually uh, been a part of those programs. And so we've got Malcolm London here. He's a former winner of Louder Than a Bomb. He appeared on the very first televised TED Talk with John Legend and Bill Gates. He runs the largest youth open mic here in Chicago, along with uh, Chance the Rapper, who you may have heard of. Uh, Let's get him out here. Please welcome Malcolm London to LiveWire.
1: Welcome to the
3: show, Malcolm. Thank you. It's really good to be here, man. It's nice to meet you.
1: Um, how did you two meet, actually? Malcolm was a, a participant in Louder Than a Bomb. And um, he performed at Columbia College. Um, and and I remember uh, you know, watching him perform a poem for the first time. And, you know, was was struck, I mean, immediately. I think you were maybe 15 or 16 yeah. at the time. Yeah, a long time. And uh, I, I think I went up to you right away, and I'm like, I don't even know. I don't. I don't even know what I said. But I was just like, "Hey, my man, you're nice." You're like, "I know." I'm like, "Cool, man, great." You know what I mean? Like, uh, and then you started to come to to YCA. Um, yeah,
3: wordplay was definitely the the spot, uh, which, which is, is our open mic. O- open mic, at, yeah. And bomb Malcolm, you won louder than a bomb one year. Yeah, I We're, won as a. So we we have an individual competition and a and a group competition. I won as an indie, and uh, my team happened to also win.
0: Uh, you and I were talking backstage a little bit about this, about Opia. Yeah. What's What's that mean to you?
3: It's a, I'm a rapper now, uh, in addition to a poet. Uh, and so when I was making it, I got a lot of rapper friends uh, who are famous, you know, no name, Vic Minsa, Chance the Rapper, a lot of great, amazing people. Tom Cruise once told me, never name drop. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> these are my friends. I All mean, right, okay. So... Um, <laughs> You know, uh, fortunately, I have cooler friends than you. Wow, Uh, damn. Wait, 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 wait. No, this is not a battle rap. This is is a public radio conversation. I'm not equipped for that. Um, And so I didn't want to, I wanted to make a project that uh, wasn't just about rap bravado, but, uh, you know, wasn't like I'm the best rapper out, but but I wanted to make something really honest. And so when people listen to my music, I wanted them to feel like they were looking me in the eyes. Well Malcolm man, we're
0: really excited to have you here what uh, what song are we gonna hear? Uh, it's a song called New Days. All right, this is Malcolm London on Live wire.
3: <laughs> Birds are chirping Leaves are growing. It's a new day now. God is on her way down. Birds are chirping. Birds are chirping. Leaves, are Leaves are growing. It's a new, day, it's a new now. day now. Some call him Patrick Kane now. I gotta go. I gotta scope to settle. Pluck a couple pedals, skip a couple pebbles Down the river to Mount Olympus Yelling timber, becoming Simba Gone until November cleft, born Ray Shrimmer, Dreadhead smoking eucalyptus Writing dissertations from my Twitter I hate the rules, but I hate to litter I've got hell of a name to live up to If you was me, you'd refuse to give up to. It's a, new day now. it's a new day now. Revolution's on its way down now. Chicago, you could smile now. A bouquet of 24 hours grows in my hand for you. If I weren't mere mortal and was goro for Mortal Kombat, I'd give birth to a million kids just to give a hand to you. Someone told me my heart was too small to love the entire world, but forgot I was narcissistic and believed any part of me could go the distance. See, my vision could envision something more. See, sometimes your flaws evolve and you become a call to action. Join me as I imagine a new world where Atlantis is on shore, where my people not getting killed anymore for bending gender, where my people not accessories anymore to Kylie Jenner. My people be anyone with bandana from small town Montana, like C.S. Jules and Jules Santana, who loves Asada in Havana. Who's seen the color purple and the purple rain? Whose nocturnal brain stays worried maternal? Who likes anime and freedom? Who's vegan and respects the fact that I love soul food? Because nothing is simple and everything is complex. Except love and acceptance. It's a new day now. Malcolm's on his way now. It's a new day now.
0: That's Malcolm London. Check out Opia, Malcolm London and Kevin Koval. Livewire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, with meat and seafood traceable to the source, whether it's farmed or wild-caught. Because finding out where dinner came from shouldn't feel like an episode of The Twilight Zone. Learn more at wholefoodsmarket.com. All right, next up, we have a kind of newish friend of mine who many of you probably know from his gig as a regular panelist on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. He's originally from the UK. He's also lived in Australia and maybe even more exotically, Dallas. Before settling here in Chicago, his latest comedy album is Universal Squirrel Theory. Please welcome the very hilarious Adam Burke to Livewire.
4: How are we doing? We're good? Yeah, man, thanks for coming out. Uh, As mentioned, yeah, I've lived here in Chicago for about 13 years, but I grew up in Northern Ireland and London. So now I have this stupid friggin' accent. Uh, My accent now, it's just thick enough to be annoying, but not enough to be charming. It's not weird enough where you're going to say anything, but you definitely want your suspicions confirmed by the end of the night. It's fall here in Chicago. Are we excited? Do we like the fall? A friend of mine loves the fall. I said, why do you like it so much? He said, well, I just like all the beautiful changing colors of the leaves, the foliage. And that's fine. But that's the only time we, as humans, find death and decay aesthetically pleasing. Like, those leaves are dying. I'm just saying, people don't go on walking tours of nursing homes going, look at all the beautiful blues and grays. Like, that's just not going to make its way Onto a calendar anytime soon. Oh, it's gonna get worse, folks. You can. <laughs> like, I like I liked the Chicago winter. I don't even like that it's gotten milder. I like a proper, brutal Chicago winter. I especially love seeing someone go through their first one. I find it incredibly entertaining. Because when you've been here for a while, they come up to you like you have an abusive boyfriend. They're like, why are you still with him? And you're like, well, he's not always like this. You should see him in the summer. It's free music and air and water. It's a delight. Uh, the one thing I like about the summer. Now you know you've been looking to this. So we have these rules in Chicago. Like for instance, what's the Chicago rule about hot dogs? You hear that? Hear that? How it's like church? People are like, no ketchup. It's serious. Certain places, they won't even have ketchup. You can't even wear a red shirt. Like, it's a whole situation. And look, however you do or don't want to do your hot dog, I personally don't care. But I just think as a city, Chicago, we need to drop this strident no ketchup rule. Because we're trying too hard. We're trying too hard. We're trying too hard to be like, we're different we're a little bit weird. At this point, Chicago is like a college freshman who forgot to develop a personality in high school and is now just trying to throw one together with a bunch of weird opinions and habits. You know the guy, you meet him in the door. he's like, hi, I'm Brian, but I go by Nightshade. I don't shake hands, I touch ankles, and I wear my shirts inside out. You're like, stop trying so friggin' hard, Brian, and put ketchup on your hot dog, you weirdo. Like, why does this city have 900 rules about what can and can't go on your meat and zero rules about what goes in the meat? <laughs> that frankfurter is made out of cow lips and monkey toes. Like, Heinz isn't the issue. That Polish is tied off with a human colon. I don't think <laughs> condiments are <laughs> what you should be worried about. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, but I do love it here, you know, it beats other cities. Like... I was in LA recently, and there's this cliche that everyone in Los Angeles is incredibly good looking and attractive, and the only reason people say that is because it's true. Like, I was doing a show there. To get to the venue, I had to walk through a room of just, like, the tallest, most willowy sons of bitches I've ever seen in my life, and they were just all playing ping-pong. It was like I was sneaking through a cult. They were like, join us! All we ever do is return serves and floss. And I just kept apologizing for screwing up the motif with my face and body. Like, here's how attractive I felt in Los Angeles. Are you guys familiar with romantic comedies? I felt as attractive as the sister's husband in a romantic comedy. Do you know what I'm talking about? Every rom-com, the female lead will have a sister and she's always married to the derpiest derp to ever derp a derp. He's always got bowling shirts tucked inside, pinstripe shorts. He's always outside grilling so the women can stay inside and fail the Bechdel test. He never knows where anything is. He's always like, hey, honey, have you seen my self-esteem? I'm just here to make Bradley Cooper look more attractive. <laughs> Donald Trump, and I'll leave you on this. Donald Trump made a speech where he said that not everyone at those rallies was a white supremacist or a Nazi. And someone on Twitter was like, that made, all that leaves is statue enthusiasts. That's, <laughs> because they were going to tear down a thing with Robert E. Lee. And it's ridiculous, because if you were anything other than a Klansman or a Nazi, you would have left that rally, right? I don't care how big a fan you are of the three-dimensional arts. I just picture a guy just standing there, oh, lovely day for it, let's go save a statue. I just picture, oh, I love a statue, I do. I like a knight's equestrian. I'll take a marble PA tie if I can get it. It's nothing political, I don't lean to the light the right or the left. But if I did, it would be contrapposto. That's a fun little statuary joke. (laughs) It's just nice to see so many fellow statue enthusiasts out today, all with their sharp little haircuts. I can see you're an art lover, sir. You've brought along a painting. What is that? It's It's an abstract, is it? Is it a Kandinsky? It's a what? Oh, it's a swastika. Oh. Oh, yeah, there's... There's about five more over there. See, I like statues. I like it when people stand still, not progress. You know what I mean? All right, that'll do it for me. Thank you so much. Adam Berg. Thank you.
0: Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder, but with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. Our next guest is probably best known for being one of the folks who invented a game that reveals the absolute worst in people, and no, he did not invent American politics. However, he has worked in politics as well as co-founding Blackbox, a shipping platform for artists. And as we've already alluded to, he helped create a little game called Cards Against Humanity, which scientists have found emerges at every dinner party after exactly 7.4 drinks. <laughs> Please welcome Max Temkin to LiveWire. <laughs>
2: Max, welcome to LiveWire. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to find out what uh, race you thought I was.
0: (laughs) This is going to be one of those interviews. I accept your challenge. Um, How did uh, Cards Against Humanity come about?
2: Uh, I made it with a bunch of my childhood friends. We were all kind of the nerds in school, but we were like a... A particular subspecies of nerd that's like a comedy nerd. So we would read like uh, stand-up comedy books at the lunch table to each other and make each other laugh. And Cards just sort of grew out of that, out of like uh, Mad Libs and and trying to play with language and play language games. Um, For the like four people listening to this who maybe don't know the game, can you just kind of quickly explain how it works? Sure. Uh, Cards Against Humanity is a comedy party game Uh, you could play with anywhere from like maybe four to 20 people, and someone throws out uh, a black card, which is a fill-in-the-blank phrase or an open-ended question, and then everyone else has a hand of white cards, which are sort of funny punchlines. They could be cute or disgusting or shocking or political jokes, and um, you try and make the judge laugh.
0: Um, When did you first realize, oh, we're really onto something with this?
2: Uh, I'm still not a hundred percent confident about it. Uh, what would have to happen for this game for you to be confident that it's a hit? I don't know. Every time we sell a copy, I'm I'm always the one in the group who's like, "Well, it was good well, while it lasted." There goes the last one. But like, uh, how how many uh, like how many boxes of Cards Against Humanity roughly have you guys sold? I, I the honest answer is I don't know because it freaks me out if I if I look. Uh, I mean, you know, I think with with a lot of projects like. Your, your re- life rarely gives you a moment where you're like, you know, oh, I've made it or, you know, this is like uh, this is now like a successful thing. It's it's kind of a smooth gradient of like sending it out from my apartment and upsetting all of my roommates to uh, or having a, a pallet of games uh, dropped off my parents' lawn to their surprise uh, to uh, now we have like one of those startup offices where people sit on balls. <laughs> yeah. and- there's a foosball table. Yeah. Well, we pay people to play foosball all day. Yeah. I don't. I don't want. I can't have my employees playing games.
0: <laughs> do I? Do I understand right that uh, originally you weren't even really trying to sell
2: this? Yeah. Well, so we cards was always seemed like it was too weird to sell. Like it's it's a little bit in in its structure and the type of comedy that we want to do. Uh, it seemed impossible that it would ever be sold in like big box stores and things like that. So. And, and we also didn't ever have a conception of this game that like other people would enjoy playing it or laugh at the same things that we laughed at. So we just posted it for free online. And we were just like, here's the thing that makes us laugh. Um, you know. And that's, st- that's actually still the, the way that most people play the game. It's actually still available for free online at cardsagainsthumanity.com. And it's been downloaded like millions of times. And you can just go download it and print it on your printer. So you didn't major in business? <laughs> No, I'm a, uh, I'm a philosophy major, so it's gl- so I'm glad, yeah, hell yeah. But I'm glad that something worked out.
0: How weird is it to you that this is your life, that this thing that you were making with your friends just to make each other laugh has now kind of, I guess, sort of set you up to be able to do all kinds of interesting projects going forward? I mean, it's really kind of made your life, I
2: guess. Uh, my life is certainly better than uh, before we made the game. But I think yeah. one, one of the interesting things that I love about the, my... Friends that I started. I mean, these guys are like my my best friends. Like we go way back together. And one of the things I really love about working with these guys is this is never like part of our life plan that we would make a successful comedy uh, card game. Um, so we all have sort of other projects that we do. So some of the guys are getting their PhDs or they have PhDs and and they're scientists or um, uh, teachers. Uh, I work in politics here in Chicago, so I think everyone kind of has other facets of their life and. Um, I think that's helpful for, you know, bringing that back into comedy if you have, like, a broad worldview. I I think, like, the more you learn about the world, the more you can sort of find the absurdity in in all of those little situations. Well, and it seems like the success of the game has allowed you to really operate as performance
0: artists to a certain degree. You guys boxed up... Uh, bull crap and mailed <laughs> mm-hmm. it out for Black Friday. Yeah. You we dug have... a huge hole. I mean, this is like Marina Abramovich would be jealous of your guys' oh, wow. skills. thank you. Talk about the the hole
2: to nowhere that that you guys oh, right. dug. What, that was the question. What, what was that? Uh, yes so we so cards has uh, this dilemma which is it's actually very important for our business that we do something to promote ourselves uh, around the holidays and over Black Friday uh, that turns out to be a really important time for like uh, the toy and games industry for people purchasing things but we don't really do any traditional um, like paid advertising for our games so it's always been really tough for us because we've always looked at, out at the market and we're like well how are we possibly going to compete with like Hasbro and Mattel and these big companies that have you know million dollar Ad budgets without selling out. So, we've always sort of tried to come up with these anti Black Friday sales. So, the first one we figured out was um, we did a Black Friday sale where we raised all our prices. So, it was one day only, everything is $5 more. <laughs> How and much stuff did you sell? It, amazingly, it really worked. Like, people, like it was inc- people got really excited about it. They totally got the joke, and people were like really mad the next day. They were like, I can't believe I missed out on the sale. Like, <laughs> So we really were pretty puzzled by it, and then with the, you know the next week and we got a lot of like press and stuff too, and we were sort of sitting scratching our heads the next week, going like, what the hell just happened? Like, how, like how did this happen? But I think it's a, I think it's kind of um, an improv situation where where we do these stunts, and there's you know it's a little bit of, of uh, well like the like your show, it's a little bit of a live wire. Like you kind of don't know what's going to happen. It's like a real it's a real situation with real stakes. We're setting up this scene and making this this. Putting this idea out there, and we're engaging the public as our scene partner, and they can sort of come to our rescue and make the joke real or not. Uh, and then getting to make that joke real and like read about it in the newspaper is like pretty cheap for paying five dollars extra. So. We did the one last year We did was we, we said, as long as you give us money, we'll just continue digging a hole and we'll see how big it gets. <laughs> and, it, and it went. It that was, is
0: like my eight year old dream. Yeah. I
2: was always trying to dig an underground fort.
0: Yeah. That was going to have like lighting and stuff. I would dig like two feet down and the hole would be getting smaller. Yeah. And I, I just mean, go that,
2: inside. It was a major selling point. We were like, if you guys keep this going for long enough, we'll get to China eventually and we'll see what's down there. But uh, yeah, people. Ca- I mean, people. How kept deep it, did the hole get? It got deep enough that we were starting to get a little bit. Concerned for safety and logistics purposes, but uh, eventually it did uh, run out of money. Really? So yeah, I think it went for like maybe close to a week or something. But we just told people the price of having the construction crew just show up. It was twenty-four hours, and it, we had a satellite truck because we were live streaming it, so it was really expensive. And we were just like, "Hey, if you guys, as long as you guys pay for it, we'll keep going," and it kept going. What is the conversation like with the construction crew? Oh, it was very. It was bizarre. Uh, you really quickly find out who has a sense of humor and who does not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're like, we're like the federal government, like, paying farmers, like, not to grow potatoes. We're like, could you show up and not build anything? Just, like, just, like drive the, tre- the uh, bobcat around in circles so it looks like something is happening. Yeah. Uh, We are talking to
0: Max Temkin. He is one of the creators of Cards Against Humanity and a variety of uh, other projects. We're going to take a very short break, and then we'll be back. This is LiveWire Radio from PRI this week, coming to you from Chicago. This week on the LiveWire podcast, we would like to thank some very special members. Of course, I'm talking about Jen Linker from Chicago, Illinois, no doy, and also Susanna Rubenstein from Chicago, Illinois, as well. A couple of amazing Chicagoans who have helped keep LiveWire going. It is support from members like Jen and Sue that make this little radio and podcast project that we do each week. They help make it possible. So thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Well, hello there, LiveWire podcast listener. It is I, Luke. Listen, I think we can both agree on one thing. The LiveWire podcast is amazing. How do I know that you agree with that? Because you're listening to it right now. But did you know it could be amazinger? That's right. We are looking for your feedback so that we can make an even better podcast for you. And also so we can attract the right kind of sponsors to the show and maybe the right kind of grant opportunities. So we wanted to find out some information about you. That's right. What do you like? What don't you like? We just want to find out what makes you the beautiful, amazing LiveWire podcast listener that you are. So if you could do us a kindness and head over to LiveWireRadio.org backslash podcast and click on the big red survey button at the top of the page. It takes, like, 15 seconds to take the survey i don't mean that figuratively we've timed it it actually takes 15 seconds and if you do take this 15 second survey you will be entered in a drawing to win a live wire totes bag yes it is a tote bag that says totes on it and also a live wire t-shirt those are two amazing products that you might win just for taking 15 seconds out of your busy day. And again, it'll help us make an even better podcast for you. Again, it's livewireradio.org backslash podcast. And thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. We have Max Temkin here, one of the creators of the uh, really uh, incredibly fun uh, game Cards Against Humanity all right, Max, anybody who has played has, has wondered how in the world did they come up with these hilarious, deeply troubling cards? Um, and we thought it would be fun to show people how it's done by developing a few new Cards Against Humanity right here on stage in Chicago. Yes. OK, so uh, what we're going to do is actually get some of the actual Cards Against Humanity writing team out here. Can we please have Kevin Reader and Julia Weiss come on out to the stage, as well as a ringer that we have brought in. Uh, my pal from the show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Peter Sagal is here as well. All right, so you guide me. Sure.
2: Max and Cards crew. Um, kind of tell me how this is all going to work. Sure. So when we do, when Cards does like public events or, or panels or whatever, like one of the most frequent questions we get is people want to know how the cards get written. And they'll usually say like, uh, how, oh, how high were you guys when you uh, came up with all of that? <laughs> And uh, it's not drugs; it's depression and uh, hard work. <laughs> so uh, we thought that we would uh, invite your audience to join us and, and uh, uh, write a couple of cards. So, for instance, like Arby's, we have the meats is yeah. the ad that everybody sees. You guys make a card.
0: Arby's, we have the.
2: Yes, exactly. And let
0: people fill it in.
2: Exactly. And this one was like this one we like argued over bitterly for a long time because Arby's doesn't actually use that marketing campaign anymore. So we've had many like multi-hour arguments over like if we can use it and how long we can use it and if it's still culturally relevant. And
0: again, for people listening at home trying to understand what the hell is going on, we are uh, we're we're designing a Cards Against Humanity card, which is a game where you have black cards and white cards and you construct them in sort of surprising ways. We have somebody here in the audience. What's your name, ma'am? Ilana. Ilana. Uh, what's your what's your uh, suggestion?
1: Wait! Wait! Don't.
0: Oh boy. <laughs>
2: Do you have one of those yet? That's a natch. That's actually a really good card. <laughs> it, yeah. It's not gonna <laughs> work. Ilana, you're hired. <laughs> yeah, it's not gonna work. It would have to be. It would have to be wait, 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 wait. Don't, wait,
0: don't <laughs> blank me. Wait, wait. Don't tell blank. Blank. Wait. Don't tell me. <laughs> Do you know this is true? Um, I actually wish that my show was called. Hey, hey. I'm a moron because then people who came up to me and recognized me in the street would have to say that. How many times uh, a week, Peter? Yeah, Peter, who recognizes you?
3: <laughs>
0: that actually isn't where I was going, you'd, for, the, for the record. You'd, you'd, you'd be surprised. I was going to ask you, Peter, how often in your week people make some version of a wait, wait, don't tell me joke to you? Because I'm not even the host of the show and it probably happens to me <laughs> once a week. It happen- it it's it's just the burden I bear. It just happens <laughs> a lot. Um I imagine if you're, you know, if you're if you're Ralph Macchio, people come up and do like You know, wash the window, wash the window. (laughs) And that's his burden. Did you see like a Canadian version of the Karate Kid? (laughs) It's wax on, wax Wax
2: off. I (laughs) I think that my burden, my burden is that literally no one comes up to me and says anything. (laughs) How about this? Uh, This week on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, uh, we have three limericks about blank. That's, that's, because that's because it's good. funny yeah. to imagine limericks about these. Yes. Okay. This week I'm wait wait don't tell me we have three we have three limericks about some punk kid who stole my turkey sandwich. <laughs> uh, what is your name, sir? Uh, my name is Kyle. What's your suggestion? Uh, it's a black card
0: that says one eight seven seven cars for. Oh Ooh. man. Is everybody familiar with Cars for Kids? If you listen to this a lot of commercial radio, you re- you'll hear well, it. By the way, we'd like
2: to welcome new sponsor, Cars for Kids, to the show. Can you give us the? Can you give us the card? Give us the card one more time. Let's set it up. Yeah. One eight seven seven cars for onions. <laughs> that, that sounds like, like a business deal. Max Temkin. Is can that get a national? Into. Is that a national? Uh, cars for onions is a good business that we <laughs> yeah. could get into. One actually, eight yeah. seven seven cars for Gary. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a national ad? That's a good card. Now,
0: does that, yeah. is there a chance that Kyle's suggestion, Kyle from Evanston, Illinois, could make its way into Cards Against Humanity? What is the process for something showing up in actually the printed form as part
2: of the game? I try to get booked on radio shows, and then we do this bit. And that's how we get all of our material. Yeah, Kyle's on the payroll yeah. now. Yeah. See you uh, Tuesday, Kyle. Uh, we have we like, take all Mondays off. <clears throat> we, have a, we have a series of complicated like spreadsheets that we uh, deliberate uh, telemudically over for several uh, months, <laughs> and then um, and then we do a lot of play testing and we we try and pick the the right cards. Yeah. And then I assume you're also sort of uh, retiring cards if they're no longer part of the zeitgeist. Yeah, we just did. Um, so our our last uh, big project is we sort of updated the whole game of Cards Against Humanity to to version 2.0. We replaced, like, something like 75% of the cards in the game. So it's like a huge... Because we had to take out all the Obama jokes. Like, the whole culture changed. So we kind of try and keep up with how dumb um, the world is now. And uh, You had to take out all the big words? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, nothing more than one syllable. Yeah. I keep thinking how terrible it would be to game, to play the game with comedians. For... I mean, when we, when we do our, like, marathon, like, writer's retreats... <laughs> You sit there for like an entire day, just getting, growing more and more numb. And then when a card does come along and you laugh at it, that is like a special moment. You're like, that, okay, like that, that's a keeper. like, if we don't have a card that makes the shortlist within, like, the first, like, 20 minutes, there is an energy that we need to overcome, and it feels bad. And you're like, yeah. why do I even have this stupid job? What even is my life? And um, <laughs> and then there will be a card
0: that gets a laugh, and it's like, yes, we get free LaCroix here. It yeah. is amazing. Everything <laughs> is good. That is Julia Weiss. We've also got Max Temkin here, Kevin Reeder, and Peter Sagal. Thank you so much, all of you. Thank you. welcome, once again, Malcolm London to LiveWire.
3: Opia, the ambiguous intensity of looking someone in the eye, which can feel both invasive and vulnerable. You're a mess, young boy. This features Jamila Woods, who is an amazing satirist, poet. Eyes. Open your eyes. I just see it different. Oranges and apples. One nation under God. Foreclosed in the chapel. Everybody sinning while they pointing fingers. High horse get straddled. But even our snake, hey, if my baby need a rattle, here we go. One day he gon' detox like Dr. Dre dropping detox. They say one day he gon' detox, he ain't gon' detox. Nah, they only see depression when they see your scars. Thinking you a big fish, they don't see you dreaming in a pond. Here we go. Oh, open your eyes. Yeah. See, open your eyes. All you, all you have, have is all. City, you think our is bad? Our is bogus.
0: that's gonna do it for Livewire this week thanks to our guests Max Tempkin, Kevin Koval Adam Burke and Malcolm London plus special thanks to Peter Segel as well for swinging by Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Whole Foods Market, and Fully. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Special thanks this week to Heidi Goldfine and the folks over at WBEZ. Plus, everybody at Lincoln Hall and React presents. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Haddon is our producer and editor, and Melanie Sevchenko is our assistant editor. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom, A. Walker Spring, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Chris Gein did our house sound. Michael Pickett did our recording. And our on-air mix is by Corey Shreppel sam mendelson was our production manager this week thanks so much as always to carlson audio additional funding provided by the regional arts and culture council and the james f and marion l miller foundation livewire is made possible by the generous support of our members this week we'd like to thank members ira and ruth spiro and Helene ellenby of chicago for their support For more information about our show, how you can listen to our podcast or get our newsletter, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week.
3: Try it. I don't hear you. One more time. That's Malcolm, London. Thank you for having me on the Live Wire. Thank you, Chicago.
4: P.R.I. Public Radio International.
0: Dear Live Wire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of LiveWire read on the program itself Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show and then we can keep doing this for a long long time because we love having this job Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review and if you're about to leave a review you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast